Parsha Themes is for inspired people like you who are looking for engaging and relevant Parsha and Moedim thoughts. Our weekly discussions focus on uplifting thoughts and actionable ideas that will upgrade your Avodah Hashem and enhance your Shabbos and Yantav table. I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Tropper, and it's an honor to have you with me here today. Hello and welcome to Parsha Themes on Parsha's Mikates. And let's start off with the first Ramban in the Parsha, which you might think is a very interesting topic, and that is the R. We know that Mitzrayim had the Nile River in it. And in Paro's dreams, he sees the himself standing on top of the river. And it's called the Yar. And uh, let me just take a pause and just talk about the Nile. So the Nile is actually known as uh, a river that goes through uh, Africa. And it is considered the longest river in the entire world. Um, it's about 4,258 miles long. Um, and it touches through Uganda and Dominican Republic of, of uh, Congo and all the way through Sudan and Egypt, which is uh, what takes us into Mitzrayim. So um, it, it's quite large. And the Nile has always been historically um, kind of regarded as the god or a god-given gift uh, to Egypt because uh, Egypt is not a very fertile land. But when the Nile uh, would spill over, it would help uh, fortify the entire land, which is why the first Maka of Dom actually attacked their water supply uh, against the Nile. Now, interestingly, it's only about 25 feet deep uh, in some parts, about 25 to 35 feet deep, um, which explains, uh, and historically this is true, the Egyptians were very, very bad sailors. They really didn't venture out too far. And when they did have to go down the Nile, it wasn't a very, very complex thing. And so most of their boats are very, very primitive. Um, and it would kind of give it a little bit of a new understanding of why, how and why the Egyptians um, foolishly, of course, God decided and pulled them and their horses pulled them in, into the Yamsif as well. But um, it would kind of give a new understanding of how bad they were at water. Apidar um, as well. Now Egypt prided itself on having this Nile. And in fact, they had a lot of rituals that they did on the Nile. And it's not insignificant that Paro was standing on the river because it was their deity and it was served. And the Mepharshim explained that uh, the entire Egyptian ideology was using your god as a self-aggrandizement and a way to lift yourself up. So Li Arivaniasisi, the Pasuk that describes Paro's statement, uh, which is that I created the R, the Nile, and I created myself, uh, which is a direct contrast and uh, uh, attack against God. That was what Paro was all about. So Rashi comes along and explains that the word Yar um, is a very unique word. And he says that all the other Naharos rivers are not called Yarim, except for the Nile. That's the only one. And the reason that it has this specific name is because of the way it irrigates. Uh, the men uh, that are all trying to get their crops watered and irrigated, they all dig yorim yorim. They dig ditches so that uh, when the Nile flows over, it will uh, be able to get into everybody's field. And so the word yor is describing what people do in order to be able to get its waters. That's what Rashi says. However, the Ramban takes issue with this and he says, what are you talking about? There's a Mephorish Pusik that uh, describes the Chidekel, which is a different body of water, and it calls it ER. Um, and it's a Pusik in Daniil. Um, so you see explicitly that it, that uh, the name ER does not uh, proprietarily used for Nile only. Uh, however, the Ra'im and other Mepharshim say that no, Rashi might still be correct because that Pusik is a Nevuah. And in a Nevuah, it could be that he was describing the Chidekel, but then in a different moment, it turned into the Nile. And there are specific reasons for that. So it might have been actually referring to the Nile itself. So therefore, there's no disproof. Either way, the Ramban brings down from the uh, Unkelis that the Pshat in the word Nahar 
Yar is simply that it means Nahar. It means it's a river. And he says that, he suggests that perhaps the reason is because the rain comes based on the um, Oros, based on the sun and the moon. And that's how Naharos, that's how rivers are formed based on uh, precipitation from the clouds and from the weather. And so therefore, that's why it's called off of that. And that's the Ramban. And so when you kind of look at this, you think to yourself, well, what's going on? Why, why does it make a difference? But the answer is that we want to understand every word of a Torah. It's still Torah to talk about this Nile River. And I think perhaps you could suggest that what's going on over here is that there's something cultural going on here. And Rashi is explaining that perhaps Rashi is explaining that people focus on how they could use the river, how they could use the Nile, that they specifically dig Yorim around ditches so that it will overflow. And that's how they worshipped it. And the Ramban is saying that obviously there's something deeper, that they're worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars. They're worshipping the, the uh, fields of nature. But again, this is still Torah. It's still a fascinating discussion about what the word Yar means. Uh, the word Yar means light. And so it's referring to what the source of uh, where Nile is influenced from. And of course, Hashem is the source of all that. But uh, that is why it's important to look at every word in the Torah and try to understand what is it telling, what is it teaching us. Moving right along to the next passage. So Paro describes his dream. And the fascinating thing to keep in mind is that no one knows how to interpret this dream. And Paro is extremely disturbed to the point that it was only when Yosef finally is brought out of jail, this criminal is brought out of jail and he is able to interpret the dream, and he gets, uh, eventually is even elected as the viceroy to Paro. So what is so significant about these dreams? Well, we know that they meant there was going to be famine, there was going to be plentiful times, etc. So if you look at their Ramban, there's a big kasha that comes out, because their Ramban says that, well, Paro has this dream that from the river comes out these these cows, some of them are fat, some of them are skinny, and uh, their Ramban says, well, gee, the reason that Paro's dream had a uh, the R, the Nile in it, is a very simple reason, because the Nile is what uh, produced all the uh, plentiful food in Egypt. Okay, so that seems like a pretty much a no-brainer when you hear of a dream. And then, um, and basically the Nile determined whether, obviously from Hashem, but the Nile determined whether they were going to have a good season or a bad season, whether there was going to be famine or whether there was going to be food. Well, he see, so he sees these animals coming out, and he sees uh, cows coming out. And what do cows do? Cows plow fields. So obviously this has to do with grain and food, okay? Um, and the stalks that he sees uh, in the dream, well, those have to do with food as well. So again, we're starting to scratch our heads a little bit and try to ask ourselves, well, why didn't the other uh, advisors of Paro figure this out? Okay, so uh, then the fat ones come out and then the skinny ones come there and it says that they batamona paros. They stood right next to the other uh, fat ones. And so the Ramban points out very simply that um, the fact that the skinny cows came, that showed that there was going to be a famine. Skinny cows equals no food. And they stood right next to the plentiful ones, which showed that there wasn't going to be any break between the plenty and the famine. All of a sudden, there was going to be plentiful, and then immediately there was going to be famine. And that's what's going to catch everybody off guard. So that was a sign that there wasn't going to be any uh, uh, respite between the two. There was going to be a tremendous amount of bounty and then a tremendous famine. So when we, take a, when we take a step back and we zoom out, we say to ourselves, well, gee, these dreams were pretty easy to interpret. Like Rashi brings down that they were saying that Paro was going to have seven daughters and they were going to die and seven, and he was going to conquer seven lands and then he was going to lose them. These dreams are pretty straightforward. I mean, obviously, Yosef was a Navi and he understood dreams and he understood how he was supposed to interpret it, but what's going on? 
I heard from my Rebbe, Rabbi Asher Rubinstein Zatzal, from his Rebbe, Rabbi Levenstein, who explained such a Pashat idea in the classic of Chatzkel. He said, there is no Chiddush here. The dreams were extremely simple. They were easily interpretable. Anybody understands that fat cows equals plenty and food, and skinny cows equals famine. But the answer is that that's how the Rebbe Shalom brought it about. The Rebbe Shalom brought it about that no one was going to be able to interpret it. And Yosef, it's time to get him out of jail. Okay, let's bring him out. And it's time to make him the, the Viceroy of Paro so that his brothers could bow to him like the dream and fulfill that. And this is the exact time and this is how it's going to happen. And even though it was done in the most simplistic way, Hashem decided this is what I'm going to do in order to show that I'm the one that runs the world and I decided that this is the time that no one's going to understand what the dream means. And now Yosef's going to come and he's going to understand it. Moving right along to Perak Mem Aleph, Pasuk Lamad Gimel. So Yosef interprets the dream. Paro is astounded by the brilliance of the interpretation. And Yosef tells him, as uh, advice, he says you should appoint a man who is a Navon and a Chacham. So the Ramban explains, why do you need both ingredients, someone who is understanding and wise? So he says that you need to have two uh, qualities. One of them is you need to be a Chacham, that you uh, know how to preserve the uh, grain so that it does not um, rot, and so you'll be able to put it away and sell it. And the other one is a Navon, because you need to be able to manage the people of Mitzrayim in order to uh, make sure that everybody stays alive, and in order to store it away, and know how to uh, be able to make calculations. And so in life, we see that you need two things. You need to be a Navon and a Chacham. You need to be a Chacham to know how to preserve things and how to take care of things. I call that skill. You need to be a Navon to know how to manage them as well. And it's just an interesting thing in life. Moving on to Perak Mem Aleph, Pasuk Mem Hey. Yosef gets this title called Safnas Paneach, and the Mepharshim don't know what it means. So the Eben Ezra says that it's just some Egyptian word. We have no idea what it means. However, um, the Ramban says very simple. Uh, when Yosef was very forthcoming that he was a Jew, and uh, he's a person who fears God, and so he was a Hebrew, and they knew it. And so they asked him explicitly, in your language, how would you be honored? And so he told them, Tzafnas Paneach, I am the one who, Paneach, I open up, I answer, Tzafnas, things that are hidden. And that's exactly what the title that Yosef got. And he says very simply there on Ban, that many times the king would give uh, a name to his, uh, a name of title to the people that uh, he wanted to honor based on their language. And he says, we also find the same thing by Basya, Basparo, when she pulled out this Jewish baby, and she knew it was a Jewish baby that she pulled out, she named him Moshe, Kimenamaya Mishisiu. And again, the Mepharshim struggle, what does the word Moshe mean? Perhaps there's some Egyptian word for it, etc. Maybe Moshoi means water, and there are people that suggest many other things. However, Ramban says very simple, they knew he was Jewish, and so they named him Moshe, based on Kimenamaya Mishisiu, exactly like Basya said, because he was Jewish, and so they honored him with his Jewish name. So these are just interesting thoughts about how someone is named. But why would Yosef want to be named Safnas Paneach? So if you think about it, one of the biggest things that Yosef was struggling with in his life was to reach an understanding of what life is all about. Here, his mother died very tragically when he was young. He was a young boy when his mother died, and he gets sold down to Egypt uh, for a sin that he didn't understand, and his brothers hated him. And so Yosef was looking for Hashem, who was the ultimate Safnas Paneach. Hashem is the one that has the ultimate understanding of life. And Yosef was saying that I will be as reflective of Hashem as possible, and I will try to see the Yad Hashem. It's interesting because we find that Binyamin did a similar thing. Binyamin named his, his the Gemara in, in Sota tells us, Chupim, Mupim, that he named all of his ten children after tragic events in his life based on uh, his missing Yosef. And again, Binyamin was trying to make sense out of it. And I think that it's a trait that they learned from their mother, Rachel, 
who was always willing to accept Hashem's decree, just like she gave up the simanim and said that I understand that if Hashem has created this situation, then I know that my sister uh, Leah should not be embarrassed and I'm going to do what's right. And always looking to reveal Hashem's uh, presence in the world. And that's, that is the midah that they learned from their mother very, very well. Just an interesting thought. So the brothers come down to Egypt and they don't recognize Yosef. They have no idea who he is. And the Pusik says twice that Yosef recognized them. And again, the Ramban says that at first Yosef saw them and he was suspicious. It seemed very, very likely that it was them. But then once they started talking about um, that they were from, er from Eretz Canaan and he started seeing them and understanding who they were, then he fully understood who they were. And so too in life, we have sometimes we have a gut reaction to something and then we confirm it later. It's always good to make sure that we confirm things, which is why it says twice that he recognized them. But why didn't the brothers recognize Yosef? I mean, they sold him down to the to Yishmael. They didn't know it to the uh, Arabs. They didn't necessarily know where he was going, but it just seemed so suspicious. It says they're on bond, a Yisod Gadol in life. They were blind to it because in their mind, Yosef was a sinner and he did something wrong. And therefore, it was impossible that Yosef could ever be successful and ever be this one in Mitzrayim that we're bowing to because it was just an impossibility. And we have to know that sometimes our own stubbornness, our own confirmation biases stop us from seeing reality, which is why it's always so important to make sure that we are accountable to others and that we are uh, getting objective opinions from others to help us out, make sure that we're not being blinded. Ain't Adam Roy Nigeatsmo, how much a person could blind himself. And I was at a shul one time uh, by Rabbi Yermiel Kaganoff, who was the Rav in Baltimore, and has now moved to Eretz Israel and lived there many years. And his, one of the most memorable speeches he ever gave was in Parshas Vayigash, uh, where Yosef reveals himself. And he spoke about this exact Yisod. And it was the shortest speech he ever gave, but probably the most powerful, in my opinion. And he stood up for one minute and he said, why didn't the brothers ever figure out who this was? Here Yosef was giving them hints and telling them, Binyamin, sit next to me because you're, you don't have a mother and I don't have a mother. And knowing their birth order and knowing everything about them, but yet never once did it ever dawn upon them that, hey, maybe this is Yosef. And the answer is that when you're biased and you have blocked something out of your mind, it could, the truth could be staring you right in the face. But if you're not willing to see it, you just won't see it. And he sat down, and that was a schmooze. And what an impact this made on me 20, 25 years later. Such a true point in life. So, Yosef's brothers had no idea who it was. Ramban asks, a famous Kasha, the Rishonim asks, why didn't Yosef write a letter to his family, to Yaakov, to let them know where he was? He didn't want his father to suffer. We, we see that he immediately called his father back to Egypt as soon as he did reveal himself. And again, the Ramban says that Yosef understood that the dreams were going to be Niskayim in this way, and therefore he needed to make sure they would be Niskayim outside of Eretz Yisrael, where the brothers would bow to him, and ultimately Yaakov would bow to him as well, just like in his dreams. And um, so therefore he needed to make sure that, that would happen. Last thought, which is a very, very dear one to me, when uh, Yaakov sends uh, Binyamin and finally acquiesces and agrees to let him go, and Perak Mem Gimel Pasigedalad, so he says that Bekel Shaka Yiten Lachem Rachamim, may Hashem have mercy. And the Ramban says, simple understanding, but a big yisod in life, that Kel Shakai, Hashem, who is Midas Adin, who might have Midas Adin against me, Yitan Lechem Rachamim, may he turn that Din into Rachamim, into mercy. So many times in life, it feels like Hashem has Din against us, and we dive into Hashem to turn it into Rachamim. When we stand in front of Shmon Esrei by Mincha and by Musaf, we say not only the Pasuk of Hashem Sevasai Tiftach, but we also say, Ki Shem Hashem Ekra Havugodol Elokeinu. And that Pasuk is at the end of Devarim. What's shot in that Pasuk? Why do we say that before we daven? And some people say that Rizal added it, or other people in his time. 
um, based on Madrashim and other Chazals. We don't just add things to davening. Um, but what's the pshat? The Sephorno explains beautifully. Kishem Hashem Ekra. I always call to Hashem for Rachamim. That's Yud Kevavke. Havu Elokeinu. But I, I give honor to Elokeinu. I give honor to Midas Adin, even if I call to Hashem and Rachamim, and I hope that he changes it, but yet I give honor to the Midas Adin because I know that whatever Hashem does is always a tov, and even if it's something that I don't like and I don't want, I still acknowledge that Hashem knows best. And there's a passing in Tehillim, uh, capital Nun, that says, Ekra lelokim v'ashem ha'aneh. I call to Elokim, to Midas Adin, but I hope that Hashem, Midas HaRachamim, will answer, and we always want to try to be mahapich, Midas Adin to Midas HaRachamim. That's why, just like the shofar, we blow We blow on the Midas Adin side, which is the smaller side, the small hole. But then it comes out on the end, in the big side, which is Midas HaChesed, just like the right side, the right hand is usually stronger. Most people are righties in the world. The right hand is always stronger. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar explains that the right Midas HaChesed is more prevalent in this world. Midas HaRachamim is what keeps the world around. But the left, that's the weaker hand, That's there is sometimes Din. I mean, we have to know that Hashem has a calculation for all of us. Of course, we daven and we ask Hashem to give us only Rachamim, but we also recognize that there is Midas din and we accept Hashem wholeheartedly. Thanks for joining us. For more Torah content and to make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe and visit us at parshathemes.com.